Zapier and other tools like that, that just when a new listing pops up on Zillow that meets our or matches our buy box and our investment criteria, it'll automatically bring it to our deal analysis tool so that I could just open it up and I get notified that there's a new one that meets our criteria. It's in the deal analysis tool and I can just look at it and see, you know, red or green, yay or nay. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Nathan, welcome to the show. Hey, Matt, how you doing? Fantastic. Even better now that you're here. Well, let's hopefully let's I'll try to keep it that way then. <laughs> well, you know, I like to start with the difficult questions here. What's yep. your favorite ice cream? I'm going to give you the most boring answer that exists out there. My favorite ice cream is vanilla ice cream. When you said boring, I said, if this guy says vanilla ice cream, I'm going to be very disappointed. Well, I guess you're going to hear a lot about what we talk about today, but a lot of the stuff that we do, I like to keep it simple. And for some people, that means boring, but I've got a busy life. So vanilla it is. Actually, now that I think about it, there is this one brand in Switzerland where I grew up that makes this meringue, double cream, caramel type only. You can only buy it in Switzerland. Ice cream, that is fantastic, but I would still go with vanilla any day. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? I do a lot of things. What don't I do? That's what, I, what it feels like at least. But um, I guess first, I'm a husband and a father. I've got two little ones, a six-year-old and a four-year-old. When I'm not you know, trying to be a good husband and trying to be a good father, I am a technology executive, so I have a full-time job in the technology space out here in the uh, Bay Area. I've been, uh, I'm an engineer by trade, so I've been in technology, building technology products and teams uh, my entire career, essentially, which I absolutely love. I love technology and I love people, so I love building teams. And when I'm not doing all those things, um, we, my wife and I do quite a bit of real estate investing. So we invest uh, out of state, um, and just like many, I guess, real estate investor stories, you know, we've kind of moved on and graduated from just doing investing for ourselves to helping out our, you know, family, friends, coworkers, friends of friends, other people are interested in getting started. Uh, so we do a little bit of, you know, helping out and coaching like that on the side. And, um, I guess I've also been known to make a pretty mean pizza. We're a big, uh, pizza house. So every Sunday night, that's what we do. And what's your, what's your secret pizza? Is it wood fire? Wood fire, but I actually just got for uh, for my 40th birthday here, uh, the Gosney pizza oven, which is fantastic. And it does both gas and or wood. So you could choose. Uh, wood's great. It's authentic and all that. It just takes a bit more nursing. You got to sit there and, yeah. you know, take care of the fire. But that's also a good excuse for having a beer, I guess. Yeah. Why would you ever choose gas if you have wood as an option, though? It's faster. You could get to yeah. the temps much faster than with the wood, basically. But they're both good. Do I want to do I want to eat plain vanilla or do I want to find it in Switzerland and have some good cream ice cream? I think next time you're there, you got to check it out. <laughs> got it, got it. Well, I know we've got a lot of different things that we could talk about, and I'm super interested to talk to you about one being a technology. Both of us kind of busted our cheap our careers through technology. Two, father, husband, yeah. all those sorts of things, um, but also investing in real estate. So let's start since we are a real estate show with the real estate. Where did your real estate journey begin? So it began, um, I just had to say where to start with that story. Cause so I guess uh, my, like my background, my family's background, we're not 
it's not like we're real estate, you know, tycoons or do anything in real estate per se. It's the same on my wife's side. You know, my parents over there, you know, 70 years or whatever it is now, they, you know, of course, bought their primary residences. They've also, you know, invested and all of this is back in Europe, but they've also invested in some real estate, but just as a means to, uh, well, in Switzerland, frankly, you're better off investing in real estate with a mortgage to not pay, um, uh, I'm blanking on the term, uh, a wealth tax. So if you had that money, sorry, sitting in your bank account, you would be paying a wealth tax for that. So it was just more a reason to to not pay that tax and invest in an asset. So that was the the exposure that I had to real estate. Um, but it was always kind of in the back of my mind. I always knew, you know, at one point in time, my wife and I were going to buy a primary residence. You know, I, we were in San Francisco. So we always had the idea of looking for a primary residence that, you know, a, a small like apartment or condo type place that we could then hold on to and rent out when we choose to uh, buy our, you know, a larger single family home when we have kids and all that. So that was kind of always how we looked at it. And then as I was doing, you know, this research and trying to get ready for buying real estate, whether it be our primary residence or, uh, you know, our, you know, this condo or like our, our eventual home, um, I was doing my, my homework, you know, typical podcasts and books and whatnot. And I still can't remember where this was because this is many years ago. But I heard this one maybe host or guest on some show talk about how they had purchased a rental property for their newborn child, put it on a 15 year mortgage to have the tenants paid off in the 15 years. And by the time their kid was college age, they would have this, you know, two, $300,000 asset that was paid for that could be refinanced and pay for college, sold to pay for college, use the cash flow to pay for college or whatever it is. And when I heard that, I kind of fell off my chair. It was like, that is a genius idea. And I'm really yeah. annoyed and disappointed that I did not think about it myself first. So I like that idea. And that's kind of what kicked started the whole, let's get real serious about this, buy a first rental for our, our firstborn, um, drank that Kool-Aid. It's like, yeah, one's not enough. I want to de-risk. Let's get another one and maybe a third or fourth because that way they can kind of pay for each other should something happen, should a tenant move out. Um, then we had a second kid, so we had to buy the second kid, their college fund property. So we did that and that's kind of how we got started essentially. And now we're just, we're at a point where we're fortunate enough that, you know, the, the rental portfolio that we have kind of self funds the next acquisition. So now it's just kind of scaling and building it up, I guess. Yeah. It's funny that you mentioned that about the, uh, giving it to your kids for college fund. Um, we, I still have a single family portfolio myself. We have two kids. But two of them are assigned houses today that is yeah. going to be their college fund. And the way I describe it is like they're both here in Nashville. I can tell you that they will be worth at least double by the time they turn 18. And at that point, if they decide to keep it, live in it, and they want to start their life from that point, I've done my job. If they decide yep. they want to go to college, well, boom, we've had somebody else pay for their college because uh, whoever the tenant was, was paying down the note and building up the equity in that property. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was thinking about it and just comparing it to even these, these, uh, and I can't remember which, you know, which, um, savings plan these are, but for college, the college savings plans where, you know, over 15, 20 years, I'm still the person that has to put the money in every month or every paycheck or whatever. And yes, granted, there will be interest and whatnot that accrues over, you know, 15, 18 years, but I'm still the one needing to find that 200, 300 grand, whatever it is per child 
if I went that route, it was like, I'd much rather have somebody else, you know, pay that money basically and have my kid go to school for free. Um, so yeah. that was really what, what started it, I guess, for us. Yeah. What you're talking about is a 529 plan. And what yeah. I actually didn't know when I opened a 529 plan for one of my best friends, first kids is that if they decide not to go to college, all of that money that has accrued and earned is actually now taxable. Like it can only be used for college. And when I found that. that out, I'm like, that that's a scam. You're telling me that uh, if they decide they don't want to go to college, all of a sudden now we have to pay tax on that. That doesn't feel right. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so where was your first property? So our first property, I guess, technically was this condo in San Francisco that we bought thinking it would turn out to be a rental. Um, long story short, we did not keep it as a rental because, you know, COVID and everything and San Francisco, I guess enough said. Um, but our first um, rental property was in Northwest Indiana, just outside of Chicago, essentially. Um, and we found a good solid team out there, you know, people we trusted, other investors that we could kind of tap into as newbie investors to kind of ask all our newbie questions and uh, get kind of a network going, you know, do you have a good agent there? Do you have a good property manager there? Do you have a good lender, insurance broker, all those, you know, types of, of key individuals that that help kind of run a a solid, um, you know, cash flowing rental portfolio out of state. Um, and yeah, and we started there essentially because we found the right team and then I was just shopping around there and there we go. So it sounds like an episode of Mythbusters, but like myth number one in investing into real estate, you do not have to live in the same town where your real estate is. Now, I will say my first property was and my first, uh, my second property was, but after property two, I was like, okay, I understand how to do this now. I just have to go to the right market with the right, with the right property. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, that myth, I mean, I couldn't agree more. A complete, um, I mean, obviously I don't believe in it since we invest exclusively, you know, out of state and remote from where we live. Um, but I also like to think about it, like the whole idea when we got into real estate investing was for us to not get a new job was for us to get something that is, you know, more hands off, uh, maybe passive. I don't like to use that term because there's always stuff involved, but I was not looking for another job and I didn't want another job. And I was telling my wife, I think at the time, even when we started talking about this, that even if we bought the house next door, literally next door as a rental property, I don't want to be the one taking care of it when stuff happens. So I would be working with somebody anyway. Um, and more likely than not, I would not know how to address a lot of the things that happen with this property. So I'm going to be reaching out to somebody anyway. So whether I do it over the phone, over Zoom, because the house is the house next door or a thousand miles over, doesn't really make a difference. That's the key right there. So I mentioned my first property was near where I lived. Actually, it was less than a quarter mile. I could walk to it. And I'm like, oh, eyes and yeah. ears in the property. I understand the market, all those sorts of things. The first time I got a call about the HVAC and like the heat wouldn't turn on and it was like September, I was like, I don't, I don't know what to do with that. I'm gonna have to call somebody for that. And I think that's exactly. when it kind of clicked in my mind. Like, oh, wait, I'm not very handy. If I swing a hammer, you wouldn't know if I was left-handed or right-handed. So it's really about finding the right team and building the right team around you. Yeah, 100%. So what is uh what does your portfolio look like today? I know you said uh, before the show you got some stuff in St. Louis, you got some stuff in Northeast uh, West Indiana. Like how many single how many doors do you have today? So yeah, we we only do single family homes. That's our bread and butter. What we like the most, and we can get into why and and whatnot if if we have time and if you want to. But um, we today I think we have twelve doors uh, across 
uh, Northwest Indiana and St. Louis. And I say I think because, um, well, I haven't checked in, in a little bit, but also we will, although we are buy and hold and we plan on holding these assets forever, giving them to our kids when we move on and whatnot, if opportunity knocks on the door and somebody wants to buy one of these properties for the right price, we'll sell it. So we've, you know, yep. we've transacted on things that we've owned for the right reasons and the right price. Uh, but that's where we're at right now. Gotcha. Gotcha. What, um, what did you like about those markets? So if you were looking to invest in out of state, why did you pick those markets? Yeah, so that's a great question. So for, so we're in two different markets, so Northwest Indiana and then St. Louis primarily. Um, and we picked those two markets for different reasons. The Northwest Indiana is not where we're most actively investing and growing, but it was because we were connected into a solid team that I ended up building a relationship with trust, you know, referrals, other investors, you know, referred these folks and, and whatnot to us. Uh, maybe more importantly, and most importantly, the property manager. So, I mean, they, it just, it just gelled and it clicked with them and we worked out a, a good agreement and, you know, uh, their rates and whatnot worked for us. So I, I kind of found that team there first. And because I had the team, I felt confident and comfortable that I could invest there. And that's why we bought the first property there. Um, St. Louis was a bit different because we, we wanted to diversify. We wanted to not be just, exclusively in that one market. Um, so I started looking at other markets and it was a process of elimination pretty much for me is like, you know, we, we wanted, uh, and we, we still look for cash flowing properties. I don't want to have to come out of pocket on anything that we own betting on appreciation over time. We never know where that goes. It's basically a gamble, even though sure, probably with a long enough time horizon, things will appreciate, but stuff happens and you don't know when you need to sell refi, you know, exchange assets or whatever. So we ruled out both coasts essentially because those are primarily, you know, cyclical markets. Um, and then for me, it was like we ruled out most of the South for primarily like, you know, um, ecological and weather concerns. I mean, I don't know what Florida is going to be like in 50 years when we hand these properties to our kids, you know, hurricanes, floods, so on and so forth. So it kind of ruled out the South and then that left um, you know, the Midwest. And then in the Midwest, we wanted to look at cities that were large enough that um, there was a diverse, you know, tenant pool, diverse job, you know, employer pool, uh, enough options, you know, when it comes to property management, you know, um, you know, subcontractors or specialists and whatnot, not just your, you know, tiny 1000 person town where you've got one person that has a part time job as a property manager. So it kind of narrowed it down real fast. Um, and then when, when we were looking at these markets at the time, every single person seemed to go invest in Indianapolis and Kansas city. So it was like, why would I go there if that's where everybody's going and I'm just going to have more competition. And at the time, not many people seemed to be talking about St. Louis. Uh, so we landed on St. Louis and, you know, after doing a bit more due diligence, one of the things that I really liked about, um, that particular market, it's very diverse in terms of. Uh, different asset class, so single families, you know, lower end, uh, you know, prior lower price point, single families, higher price point neighborhoods and single families, small residential units all over parts of the city, larger commercial units, you know, depending on, you know, where you're looking at in the city. So just had a lot of opportunity if we wanted to change and kind of, you know, um, uh, move through like our investment asset class, depending on like the, the environment, really. 
Um, I loved a couple things there. that you said there, and I want to repeat them. One, you didn't, you kind of ruled out the East Coast, uh, the coast, because they are very cyclical uh, and tend yeah. to be very pricey. Like the coast of the country don't really cash flow from what I've seen. So having a clear investment goal that you want cash flow was key there. Uh, and then two, I, I feel the same way about some of the Bay areas in Texas and some of the areas in the Gulf and some of the areas in Florida around. I don't think that climate change and seawater rising will affect me and my lifetime if I own properties within 10 miles of there. But certainly, as we're starting to see, insurers will become aware that hurricanes and floods and things like that are happening exactly. more frequently and insurance costs will rise. And I don't want to be left holding the bag when it's time to sell an asset where all of a sudden insurance costs have gone up 400, 500%, things like that. Or when you hand these properties to your kids, if that's what you want to do, right? Which is our case, right? right? You know, when they have them for another 30 years, right? We're talking 80, 100 years from now, they might still own these. I don't know what it's going to be down, what it's going to be like down there, you know, with the climate change and all. So that's why we ruled that part yeah. of the country out. Now, I don't know a lot about St. Louis, so this might be a little bit ignorant, but I've heard that uh, St. Louis has a few rough parts in the town. Um, so as a out-of-state investor, how do you make sure that you stay clear away from the block by block? This block's a good block, that bad, that block's a bad block. Yeah. So first, I think that statement is totally fair and accurate. And I say that without being a St. Louis native or without claiming I'm a St. Louis expert. That being said, you know, we've been investing there for several years now. So we're starting to know our way around a bit. But, um, you know, I think it's a few things you can pull up. You know, there's a whole bunch of online tools, right, that just give you crime statistics and crime maps. So you can kind of, um, you know, just yourself on your own at your computer kind of map those out and figure out what areas are not the best uh, from a kind of safety or crime perspective. Um, I think more importantly for us was talking to our team, but also finding other investors in that same market uh, who know the market or maybe even are local to that market and asking them to say, hey, I'm looking at this zip code or this neighborhood or this street. What do you know? What's it like? So it's like asking the people who know um, and then one other thing, part of I, our, part of our, sorry, like buy box or our, our purchase criteria for our single family, uh, rentals, we have a criteria in there that is all about like the school district, the school neighborhood. And we look specifically at the school rating, the cumulative school rating for that particular area. And we want it to be within a certain threshold and that basically, you know, rules out any higher, you know, crime area in the city as well, just because that's what we look for. And the main reason for us doing that is the premise being, you know, slightly better schools, typically, you know, three bed, two bath, you know, with the basement homes, families move in, they stay longer because their kids are in a decent, you know, school district. Um, so that helped us as well, kind of rule out those sketchier areas. But still today, Every time we purchase a property, I'll check with the property manager and obviously the agent who's walking the property say, what's the neighborhood like? And they'll they'll be real quick to tell you yay or nay, even to the point where our property manager has some zip codes that they will not take properties to manage in. I was getting ready to say, first and foremost, if you have a property manager who won't manage a property in a neighborhood, don't buy no matter what the price is. That is not the right neighborhood to buy in. Nope. So when you're buying uh, average three by two in St. Louis, like what is the average price range today? 
today, close to 200, probably like 175, oh, okay. 200. Yeah. Yeah. Again, that's way where we look, the type of house that we look at, the neighborhoods that we look at. Um, I mean, if you want the better school, you know, areas and whatnot, you can go as five, as high as five, 600, right? There's a little bit of everything, which is also what I like about St. Louis. Yeah. I mean, 200,000 is way more on a, um, price point than I thought you were going to say. And when, when I think of typical large Midwest towns, I think of like under a hundred thousand dollar home price still. I mean, there are plenty of those in St. Oh, Louis, yeah. not plenty of those that we will look at. Gotcha. Well, I want to hit you with a couple of objections that I've seen kind of growing my single family portfolio, and I want to hear how you overcome them or what your thoughts are. Let's do um, it. So the first one is, as I scaled my single family portfolio, what I, one thing that kind of bothered me is it was very lumpy when big things happen. So first and foremost, I believe that if you're in this business, you should always set aside reserves because it's not a matter of if something will happen, it's a matter of when. And for me, I had two things that happened in the same year, actually in this back-to-back months. I had an HVAC unit go out in one place and then flood damage in another. And that basically wiped out my cash flow for the entire year on those properties. So first of all, like how are you um, absorbing some of these larger CapEx expenses that happen on these properties from time to time? Yeah, so there's a few things I think um, that come into play here. The first is really when we're looking at the property itself and offering on the property itself. So we will take a, a you know deep dive, extensive look at these big systems, so roof, electrical, windows, HVAC, you know, um, uh, water tanks, sump pumps, all of these things. And depending on their age, depending on the you know what we could tell from the agent walking the property or the inspection on the property we will take that into consideration and you know typically be pretty aggressive in asking for concessions when we're buying so we're already trying to go into this accounting for as much as we possibly can sometimes we get the seller to pay for some of these replacements sometimes you just get these you know larger price reductions that then allow us to go in before we rent it out and you know fix these things up um so that's that's, I think, step number one is just when we're acquiring these properties. And then I'd say step number two is um, we're just very conservative with our numbers. We just put a large amount of money aside every month uh, to cover for future, you know, CapEx items. Um, so when things happen, we typically have a, a reserve set aside um, that is commensurate to what might happen. And then um, have that ready to deploy and fix whatever happens when it happens without it impacting our cash flow. So, I mean, I've seen a lot of, you know, investors and people trying to sell, you know, turnkey solutions or, you know, courses or whatever that will run numbers like purchase. So mortgage, so rent minus mortgage minus property taxes, and that's your cash flow. And like, not even close, not even close. I have like, eight rows in my spreadsheet that says, you know, rent minus, you know, mortgage minus, you know, taxes minus all these other things. Then I have my cash flow. And because we run our numbers conservatively, then we're in a position where our reserves are are where they need to be for when stuff happens. Yeah. I mean, my general rule of thumb for my single family portfolio today is set aside 10% of the rent, the rent, not the profit, the rent into a separate account yeah. as that's my slush fund for when things happen. Is that kind of your general rule of thumb? So, yeah, we, we have 10% for CapEx slush fund, but then we have an additional cap uh, 10% for just like your ongoing repairs. So like the faucets, you know, the sinks clogged, yep. 
right? Or the screen door broke, right? That's not CapEx, but so we already have 20% off the top just for these types of things. And then we have another, I don't know the exact percentage, but it's like a $750 a year kind of, you know, fixed sum for just turn reserves. So every time the tenant leaves and we have to paint, fix a doorknob, whatever, we put that aside. So we, like I said, we have seven or eight items that we take off the top of the rent before we consider like our free and available cash flow. Right. And so I want to make a very clear distinction. That is not your cash flow, the stuff you're setting aside. That is set aside money for when things happen. The rest is cash flow. So my yeah. next question is, do you have like a, a, a typical cash on cash that you look for um, with that number? Yeah. So so the the dollar amount of, of the, the free cash flow, again, free. So whatever's left that you use beer money or burn the money. And I'd say that intentionally to mean everything else is accounted for. Turn costs, PM fees, you know, mortgage, everything's already accounted for, CapEx and all that. Um, that dollar amount is less important to me than how hard is my money working that I've put into acquiring this asset. So if it's making these numbers up, but if, you know, I'm putting $50,000 into buying an asset, uh, a single family home, right, where it's down payment plus repairs plus closing costs and all of that, I want to know how hard that. 50 grand in this example is working for me. And in today's, you know, banking and lending environment, you could get 5% in a savings account, right? So when I'm looking to buy a single family home, I want that 50,000 hypothetical $50,000 to work, you know, harder than the 5% it could get sitting in a savings account where I have zero risk. Um, so today we're looking for a minimum of 8%. Um, and that's, what's more important to us than the actual dollar amount of what that cash flow represents. Um, but I think from a performance perspective, we're averaging 12%, I think when I look at our, our, yeah. our numbers. So that's more or less where we're at right now. Yeah. I want to highlight because it keeps coming up when I'm having conversations with investors is that, um, yeah, yes, you can go get a treasury bill for 5% or a savings account for roughly 5% today. And when Nathan says 8%, people are like, well, that's only five, six, seven, eight, 3% difference. That's not worth the risk. The only thing I would caveat that with is that 8% is mostly tax-free because you're using the depreciation to offset it. So you're getting an 8% true rate of return. Whereas when you take taxes out from your savings account or your uh, CDs or something like that, you're really looking at a 4% real rate of return. Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you'd like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. Well, yeah, so 100%. I think even more so than that, right, there's the... That is not accounted for in this 8%. That's really just the 8%, $50,000 in this example, you know, money working at 8%. But you need to factor into your point. Taxes is one thing. Appreciation on the property is another. Yep. You know, mortgage pay down is another, right? These are conservative numbers as well. So like I said, we effectively are running around 12%. So if you add all those things up, it's a lot more than 8%. 
But I just That's like right. to look at that eight percent as the like the easier benchmark to compare things at. But I mean, if I look at a property that you own for 10 years, 15, 30, whatever, when you look at with mortgage pay down and everything else, it's a whole lot more than 8%. That's right. That's right. All right. Second objection that I have in the single family space is that what people don't tell you is that when you enter this space after 10 loans, Fannie and Freddie won't lend to you anymore. So you have to go find an in-house bank, a commercial bank. You have to restructure your debt into... Um, a portfolio loan or just something like that. So that's actually what got me into the commercial space is I was at my 10 single family units. I go to apply for a new mortgage to make a, an acquisition. And my typical lender said, Hey, I can't, I can't lend to you anymore. You're great on paper. You're making great money. You've got great cash flow. These properties are doing great, but I can't sell this to Fannie and Freddie. So how did you overcome that? Cause with 12, you obviously have different lenders now. So how did you overcome that? Yeah, and there's another thing as well that I hear a lot about that. So first of all, that is true. Those 10, 10 sorry, Fannie Freddie loans also can change over time depending on Fannie and Freddie's regulations. And I think at one point in time, not too many years ago, the number was actually four, right? So it could change at any point in time. But even more so, I've heard like, um, you know, people talk about how it's 10 per social security number per individual. So if you're married with your spouse, you really get 20. So you could do these 20 properties like, that sounds great on paper, but it's not that simple either because they then look at each individual on their own yep. and can they actually um, hold those mortgages and, and, and um, um, do they make enough income to actually cover that debt on their own? So in our case, we have a very um, uneven income between my wife and I. Of course, we you know file jointly and all that stuff, so it's, it doesn't really matter, but in our situation, it's not like we could actually go and get the 10 for her and 10 for me. So that's a myth that I think needs to be called out because it's always sold as, well, just get 10 in your name and 10 in her name and you're good. Um, but to, sorry, to answer your question, I mean, there, there's so, there, there's so much more money than there are deals always today, tomorrow, always that there's plenty of ways to find the money. Um, and when we ran out, I mean, I actually still work with the same lender that gave me our first 10 uh, Fannie Freddie loans. They just have a product, a loan, basically that they can keep in-house. So it's, you know, it's an 11th, a 12th, it doesn't matter. They, you know, can hold it in-house. That's fine. You have, you know, lenders that these DSCR lenders, right, that specialize in looking at can the asset, can the property pay for itself and cover the loan? And if that's the case, they don't even look at you. Right. There's, you know, large networks of friends and family that have money, you know, 401ks that are, you know, parked from a former employer that they could put to work. So there's plenty of ways to get the money. Yeah, I um, I agree with you. And that's the part that little bit of friction there said for me and my journey was like, OK, is there a different way to do this? And that's why I decided to shift. Yeah. Um, it is not an end all be all. I mean, I'm talking to three or four local banks right now that will lend against my stock portfolio. And you being a tech executive, you know, yeah. you probably have a ton yeah. of options where you don't have to sell your stocks to go invest it. Absolutely you don't not. have to sell your stocks to pay the tax to go invest. You can just borrow against your stocks to go invest. And uh, now being at large tech companies for a while, I've got enough in my portfolio that almost covers a mortgage for a lot of these yeah. these homes that we're talking about today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of ways to find the money. 
it's much easier yep. today than it was in the past. I think even just looking at these DSCR lenders, they're easy to find and that's all they do. So if you find a good asset, they'll just lend on it and they don't care about your background. Yep. Yep. All right. Last and final myth is that um, when you look at a commercial property, you are valuing the property based off of the income that it produces. In the single family space, you are basing it off of the comps or what was sold next door, very similar asset that was recently sold. So you don't have the ability really to force appreciation like you would in a commercial asset. How do you think about appreciation when you're buying single family homes? I don't, I don't know if that's entirely true, right? Cause you can go in and, and, you know, fix up and rehab your single family, you know, property to make it look nicer than the one around the corner. And you've forced your appreciation that way. Right. So, um, you can do that. Um, yeah, I, I, th that it's true. What you're saying is true. Right. And I don't, I don't contest it or disagree with it. It's not a driving factor for me. I actually prefer having the flexibility of a single family home that if I needed to sell it, there's a whole lot more buyers who are willing to buy a three bed, two bath single family home in St. Louis or Northwest Indiana than there are people looking to buy a 30 unit building, right? So if if I had to get rid of it for whatever reason, I have that flexibility. Um, so, so that's what's more important to me. Um, that being said, it was back to an earlier comment I made, I think it's also about buying right, right? You make your money when you buy, not when you sell. So it's, if you do the work to find the right properties and you get them at a, at a good price, right? The forced appreciation is not something that I'm terribly worried with, even though, even though, sorry, we could fix it up and make it look real nice if we wanted to and force appreciation that way. Yeah. I would also say based off our conversation, it sounds like you are very clear on what your goals are with investing. Hey, I want to give these down to kids. Um, you still have a few decades, hopefully left in you and uh, your kids have yeah. even more decades left in you uh, than you. And so if you're just growing at a consistent two to 5% every single year, I mean, you divide that by 72 and basically you're doubling your, your, your appreciation over the course of like 12 years. So yep. it, it's a different game. I think you're playing. Um, you're playing a cash flow legacy game. Then how do I take an asset, rehab it, make it more valuable, and sell it? Exactly. Oh yeah, that's totally different. So absolutely, yeah. For us, it's more like yeah. like I said, I was boring vanilla ice cream, right? I just want it to be easy, <laughs> simple, cash flowing. You know, build appreciation over time, get tenant pay down, and then we'll have something um, that helps in our retirement as well as something we can give to our kids when we move on. Yep. Yep. Well, I want to switch us now really quickly and talk about the fact that you've got a lot of plate spinning. So husband, father, technology executive, part-time coach with the real estate, also investing uh, out of state and just juggling a lot of different things. And I know when we first had the opportunity to connect and talk, um, that was a big portion of our conversation and different tools that we use to kind of help us automate a lot of the mundane in our life yep. and offload anything that doesn't bring value I wanted to see if you could just, it's not really a direct question, but could you give us some tips on like, how do you automate some of your life? And then maybe I'll find something in there yeah. that we can dig in further. Yeah, that's a great question. It's also a hard one to answer in the sense that, first of all, I don't know that I can remember all the things I've automated, but also there are so many things that I've kind of put process and or automation around that um, it'll, be, it'll be hard to try to get into all of them. But I think for me, it starts with, and this is not necessarily an automation thing. I see it more as a uh, productivity, maybe 
organization thing. Um, it's just, I use my calendar. I mean, I use it a lot. I have absolutely everything in my calendar from sleep time to exercise, read kind of relax time to time with my wife, to time with my kids, to W2, W2 time, coaching time, all of that. And everything I do is basically managed through my calendar. Um, and pretty much anything that, um, requires some of my time or attention gets added there through, you know, tools like Calendly and other things like that. So if I don't have the time in the calendar, then, you know, it gets scheduled for some other point in time. And, um, that allows me to keep focus on what's most important, keep my, my time and my days organized. So I know when am I doing W2? When am I doing real estate? When am I doing coaching? When am I doing family time? And those, times remain untouched and unchanged. Like I'm not taking real estate calls when I'm, you know, having breakfast with my kids. Um, the other thing as well, it's this, uh, like, uh, I don't know, again, maybe productivity hack. I'm not really sure, but mindset maybe, but I essentially try to forget everything, everything that comes into my mind. I want to put it down in some tool, some reminder app, some to-do list, something somewhere so that I don't ever have to remember anything because there's just so much coming and going to the point where like when I'm looking at a property, I see it pop up, you know, you get your automated emails from Zillow or whatever tool you use. If I'm interested in it, but it just popped up on the market and um, it's not something I'm gonna act on now because I wanna let it sit for a bit longer, see how motivated the sellers are. You, you know, if you're on your phone, I know iOS, cause that's what I use. I'm assuming Android has the same thing, but you could just, share that listing from Zillow to the reminders app and say, set a reminder in 20 days. And then I've forgotten about it. And 20 days later, I get the reminder, say, hey, go look at this property. Here's the link. And if it's still on the market, we'll do deeper due diligence, right? We have, you know, automations through, um, you know, Zapier and other tools like that, that just when a new listing pops up on Zillow that meets our or matches our buy box and our investment criteria, it'll automatically bring it to our deal analysis tool so that I could just open it up and I get notified that there's a new one that meets our criteria. It's in the deal analysis tool and I could just look at it and see, you know, red or green, yay or nay. Um, trying to think what are the other big how, ones. How many call? zaps do you have set up? 20, because I've maxed out, I saw it yesterday, I've maxed out the tier I'm paying for. <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm on the free version now. I know I just started playing with the tool about a month ago. Yeah. And man, it is amazing. And it's also something that I don't even truly understand the power to it yet because it's so it, amazing. Yeah, I mean, it it, it does. If email management for me, like reminders, sending stuff to people. Um, yeah, the deal analysis tool that I use, same thing. You can, if if you get the numbers to work for you, so it imports automatically. It'll tell you how close it is to meeting your numbers, your investment return numbers. Then there's an option to automatically set a purchase price that you want to offer at so that it meets your investment criteria. So I can automate that. Then it can automate generating a report that then automates the email I send to my agent with that report to say, hey, I'm interested in this one. Just, you know, make this offer. Um, so I spend, I spend no more than 20 minutes a day on the real estate stuff and 20 minutes of the 20 minutes, I want to say 18 minutes are looking for the next property, not managing my existing portfolio. 
Yeah. We, uh, when we're done with this, I want you to show me how you, how you automated some of that stuff, because I understand again, the very basic level, but I know you can write custom APIs, which as a software engineer, you're probably pretty good at as a, um, guy that doesn't even know how to hook up a printer. Yeah. As a guy that doesn't know how to hook up a printer over here, it's a, it's a little bit more difficult to me, but, um, I think the key from what I heard from that is this idea of like getting it out of your mind and putting it in some place that you know where it is. Um, that's one of the things that I am starting to try to do more in my life is I see an article and I don't want to have 5,000 tabs open on my desktop at all time. Let me just throw that into notion. And then I've got a block on my calendar on Sundays that I go through and catalog that, delete it, read it and, uh, decide if it's worth keeping or not. So it's little things like that, that you don't understand how much mental space those things are taking up until you start implementing some of those things. Yeah, so one of the things I did for that specifically is you can automate pulling that article into the Readwise app and then mm-hmm. it will summarize it for you and read it to you. So then you can get like, you know, that whole article read to you, you know, in a summary version in a matter of minutes instead of, you know, having to spend the 20 minutes or so reading. So again, that's both automation and kind of getting the most out of my every minute of every day, I guess. Yeah. Well, we are going to nerd out after this. So I hope you blocked off the rest of your day. (laughs) Um, Nathan, I want to switch us to our last round. We're calling these the four toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Um, I think one of my favorite, there's a lot of books uh, that I like, but one, the one that I typically like to give is Adam Grant's Give and Take. Um, and that's, it's not a real estate book, um, but it's a, a book that for me just fundamentally changed my understanding of how generous people and givers, hence the name of the book, typically end ahead in life over takers and selfish people who just want to take other people's time, attention, money, whatever it may be. Um, and the book is a great read in the sense that he's, he's a, uh, what does he call himself? Adam Grant. He's a organizational psychologist, I think. So it's like a, yep. it's like a study and science backed, you know, data driven, uh, book on how givers end up ahead in life. And I just generally speaking, I believe in giving. I'm, I, I believe I'm a generous individual. That's why we kind of do this you know, free coaching and helping and all of this stuff. So it just resonated well. And I appreciated seeing like a data backed kind of scientific view on the topic. I love it. I love it. Our second one is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, I, I don't know that one. Cause that, something that comes to mind, I don't think it was ever given to me by my parents as advice, but I think it's one thing I think it's more upbringing than advice. Um, is th- my my brother's sister and I were all brought up in a family of you know a very strong work ethic. So work hard, work well, finish the job. Don't just paint the side of the fence that you could see from the street. You do the whole fence and all of that. And I think that upbringing just helped me get prepared for life, frankly, and, you know, nothing's given to you for free. Right. So, um, yeah, I don't know if the advice maybe is work hard and do a good job. I don't know. 
Yeah. I, uh, I forgot who said it, but there's an athlete out there that was like, Hey, you give it your all, no matter who you're playing. And they were like, yeah, because somebody spent their hard earned money to see me play today. And that might be the only time they ever see me play in my life. And I want to make sure that they got to see the best version of me. And I grew up playing sports. So I really, really liked that story stuck with me as I kind of grew older. Yeah. Our third one is what are you most proud of in your life? That that's a hard one. I think it's being where I am now, uh, meaning successful career that I like, you know, fantastic family that I love. We have time to experience things together. We were talking before we hit record that, you know, we were just in Mexico last week. Um, we're all loving, caring, you know, our kids have what they need. Uh, you know, we're building kind of the, this future for our, ourselves and our kids. And I appreciate that that's not given to everyone, right. Or anyone. So being where we are and, and having gone through the work, the hours, the time, the effort, the exercise to build this life for, you know, myself, I'm the one answering the question, but like for our family is probably what I'm most proud of. Yeah. Well, our fourth and final one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? That's an easy one for me. Nelson Mandela. We named our son um, Nelson. Uh, My wife and I met in South Africa. I traveled a lot in South Africa. I actually got to meet Nelson Mandela at uh, an event that I was organizing as a teenager out in um, Durban, South Africa. So there's just a lot of family meaning to the name and the individual, but the why is maybe enough said, but just what he went through and, you know, being imprisoned and tortured and treated, treated like, you know, dog crap for 27 years or whatever it was, and then come out of that and still be like, Hey, you know what? I forgive you and let's become one people and make this country great. I mean, being able to do that is, I mean, I don't know who else could do that. So Nathan, before we we were started recording, barged in on another podcast that I had at the right time, by the way. So I'm just kidding. But um, it's funny you said that because the podcast before that, they said somebody that is on my list. And you just said another one. I think Nelson Mandela, for everything that he went through to be thrown in prison, ripped from his family, tortured, beaten, abused, spit on meaningless work, taking rocks from one end of the yard to the other, only to have to bring them back and then to come out and forgive everybody and then bring them into the government that he formed and said, you represent a part of the population that is South African and we need to speak to everybody takes such a big man. And sure he had his faults from what I've learned and what I've read, but man, that's just how you do that is, is just something that I would love to share a bowl of ice cream and understand with him. So same love the answer. Love it. Nathan, I appreciate you coming on. It's been awesome to spend this time with you. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, learn more about what you've got going on, or just connect with you, where is the best place we could point them? Yeah, the easiest place to go and more importantly, to not make the same mistakes that we did when we got started in uh, real estate investing is to just go to readyforrealestatechecklist.com. And there's a free checklist that we hand out there to people that are interested in getting started. It's like it holds your hand through, do all these things and you'll be ready. And there's all the contact information there as well. So that's how you can get a hold of us. But yeah, that's the best place. Ready for realestatechecklist.com. 
Awesome. We will leave that in the show notes. And then Nathan, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Matt. It was awesome. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.